Welcome to Brunch with Billionaires with your host, Tamara Lur, Forbes' top 11 most powerful leaders. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Brunch with Billionaires. And today I am delighted to have with us a dear friend and my personal mentor, Julie Hill. Now, Julie is the trustee and director of the Lord Abbott Family of Funds, which is a $200 billion New York-based mutual funds management firm. She is also an independent board member of Columbia Care, which is publicly traded in Canada and is a $2 billion medical pharmaceutical business. So she is extremely qualified for this show. Now, when it comes to billions, that's just the beginning when it comes to Julie. She was on the board of directors of Landlease, which is a company in my hometown, Australia, which is a $10 billion international construction and development company. She also joined WellPoint Health Networks, which at its IPO from Blue Cross of California was at $2 billion. She recently retired as a longtime board member of Anthem, a Fortune 25 US healthcare company with a revenue of $137 billion, with a market capitalization of $122 billion. After decades of serving on boards and being CEOs of some of the largest companies in the world, Julie could just retreat to her Hawaiian home and put her feet up with a glass of champagne. But instead, Julie continues to impact billions of people through her dozens of board roles, including being the first woman chair of the Board of Trustees of the University of California. Now, as our podcast is all about purpose, so too is Julie, which is why I've invited her on today. She is very active in numerous philanthropic endeavors. I mean, she recently uh, traveled to Burma to work with some refugees. She's a huge champion of various human rights organizations and equally passionate as I am about more women in business and in board roles. So when I'm asked to describe Julie, that's, that's a bit of a hard one. Um, there's just so many things about her that I admire, so many beautiful qualities. She's a dear and loyal friend, uh, an inspirational leader, a true trailblazer. And we're gonna hear some stories about that today. Uh, but really, when I think about Julie, to sum it up, Jay is for joy. <laughs> and what a joy it will be for the next 45 minutes to talk to her about board roles, the financial sector and the role she played there, and all the joy that comes from making billions of impacts. Welcome, Julie. Welcome to Brunch with Billionaires. I'm very excited about our guest today because she is such a dear friend and someone that I admire, who I look to as who I want to be when I grow up. You know how you kind of think, how do I want to conduct myself over my life? How do I want to show up? And, you know, who am I most proud of that I aspire to be? And I would have to say you're one of them. So welcome, Jill. Thank you. I'm, I'm incredibly flattered. Hmm. Well, as you know, um, you have had a huge career, and I want to talk to you about that on this, this um, episode, but more importantly, how you show up. So I think what we bonded on when we first met was battle scars, to be honest, and the fact that we both show up in our heart space. So, you know, we we don't approach business the same way. Uh, we're in a very male-dominated um, industry. Uh, both of us have, um, you know, gone on to take on roles that aren't usually where 
where women sit at the table. So one of your things um, that I've noticed repeatedly in, in your career is you haven't compromised on who you are and your values. So how do you do that? It's hard enough to do that now in business. How did you do that 30 years ago? I think, and I've said this to young women, that there are enough things facing women in business that are headwinds. And instead of taking that internally and just being frustrated and accepting that as the way it is, use that anger or that frustration as energy to fuel you and to give yourself permission. So I, I had a high school guidance counselor who, when I said, what should I major in? I'm thinking of business. He said, no, 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 no. Pretty little girls like you become bitches on wheels. So you shouldn't go into business. Okay. That was a seminal thing for me at 16. And I think a lot of the drive that I had about getting into business was because I was told I couldn't, or I was judged from something on the outside. So using that energy, both for the go ahead motion, but also in not accepting BS and things that are not right. When I was on a very, very large US healthcare insurer, I remember saying to the CEO one time, for many reasons, both the ethically right reason and the long-term sustainability business case, if there is a jump ball, that's American basketball, if there is a jump ball between something is insured or something isn't, and it's someone whose health depends on this, we have to say, yes, it is insured. And I can make a business case for that, and I can make an ethically moral case for that. And if you're not in there with me, you're not my CEO. So that to me was a way of saying, I I will stand up for the underdog. I will say what's in my heart. I mean, we have a true North. We all have a true North. Some people are very good at denying it. Some people are very good at making it situational. But if that true North is there, and if you're fueled by people who say, no, you can't, we can't do this. So what would happen is these CEOs, and during my tenure on the board, there were five of them, they would profess to be doing that for a certain amount of time. And then there'd be a business imperative. They'd want to make their bonus. They'd want to have you know enough new business on the bottom line that they would forget those ethics. And in my role on that board, and I was on that board for 27 years, which is way too long. I mean, any corporate governance person would tell you it's too long. Part of it, it reset because we merged. And so it started from that time. But I would get introduced. I remember meeting Ariana Huffington and the um, CEO at the time came to the meeting and she said, I need you to know, Ariana, that this woman is the heart and soul of our board. And I remember thinking I'd never been described that way and because everybody should think like this. And sometimes you don't, you can't see it because you don't see how people see you. And I thought, okay, I'll take that. That's one of the nicest things that's been said. So being the heart and soul in an organization I I think it comes naturally to you, something you've had your own epiphany in your life that has made you feel that that should be the way you show up. But I also think sometimes get into group think, particularly on boards, there are the ethos of a board is you don't speak your mind, you don't say, everybody's very protective of where they are. And I think people don't say that. So I encourage women all the time to lead with their heart. The good news is back when I started on boards, gosh, 30 years ago, there were no other women. 
And now, at least if there are other women there who are thinking the same way, you can start to form a coalition. You know, having more women who think like that doesn't mean men don't lead with their hearts. They do. But I think women are more intimidated sometimes because it looks soft. It doesn't look like they're hard-nosed enough in business. The good news now is I think most of us are empowered enough to say, okay, I will give you the ethical case and here's your business case because your business will not be sustainable if you can't lead with the heart because people will see you. Mm-hmm. I love that. And, it, you know, what's what's interesting is what I learned at a young age, and maybe this is this underdog mentality, you know, I'm a girl who didn't go to a private school. Uh, my parents are minors. My mother's doesn't still doesn't work or you know, finished high school or drive a car. So to me, it I always felt like I didn't have the MBA. I didn't have the things that everyone else around me had. So my thing in my head was, well, you have good instinct. You have good street smarts. And I know I will just do what's right, not what's wrong. And I didn't overcomplicate things. And I think sometimes when you know, when you do go to business school and, and you, you you do know all this stuff, it almost complicates it because there's so many filters in the way and so many versions of. I didn't have any of that. I just had a simple thing, which was I need to sell this thing and it has to make sure that it does well to both people and planet, the customers that I'm serving and the people that I'm buying on. And we all go on this journey together because I don't have any capital either, by the way. So we've got to do it on an oily rag. So the best businesses are the leanest businesses and the most simple businesses because they're easy to scale. So I had this epiphany that maybe I always thought it was something that I was hiding. Like I didn't go to a private school. I don't have an MBA. You know, I learned a lot of things in the job and on the job as an entrepreneur of 25 years, but I always kept it simple because I could scale it without capital. So when women complain to me, oh, we only get 1.9% of all VC capital, I go, well, lucky you, you're going to create a very lean, scalable business. And then once we have that, what does it look like to take that beautiful business model and present that for capital? Because we don't want to give away a heap of equity at the start anyway, because it just creates fat and lazy businesses. So I love the fact that you're doing the same approach on boards, but you were doing it as the only female on the board. How did you get onto those boards in the first place? The very first board came to me because I was a sitting CEO in a very male-dominated industry. So in my Southern California community, there was a lot of press. Um, I ran a U.S. division of a big construction company, which also was British, and they had no women anywhere in their system worldwide. I got that job. Oh, gosh, this is a longer, a longer story. My boss was fired. Um, All of the top brass from the UK came over. I was a VP of marketing at the time. And I expected to be fired because my boss was so incompetent. Um, This whole team, the CEO, the chairman, the head of marketing and the CFO, oh, and their legal counsel came over for a week to take a look at the, the status of the business. And we were taken into the boardroom and we were to be questioned. And there were three other VPs. They were all guys. And two things happened. The first one was my American guys would be asked a question and they couldn't understand the question. It was like two countries divided by a common language. So I would have to translate my guys to them. When the Brits heard this, they didn't understand. So I had to translate that 
to them and then their questions back. So I, somehow I wound up being a translator. All right. So I could see both. The other side was they would ask a question and each discipline, each VP of a certain discipline could answer questions in his field. He couldn't see the global business for some reason. So again, I would answer the question, well, what he means is, think about this and this. This happened for a week. At the end of the week, the chairman said something to me about, well, what do you think caused this problem? Why do you think the business was failing? And why do you think we've had to come over here? And I said, because you weren't paying attention. I said, I hold you as responsible as anybody here. And I said, no, by the way, my boss was incompetent. Okay, so I feel like I'm going to fire it anyway. So what the hell? So the chairman comes down to my office afterwards and he said, well, I have a problem. He said, um, we came over here thinking Steve, tall Steve, was going to be the next CEO. And he said, but we think it should be you. But we don't have any women anywhere worldwide. And I said, that's your problem. That is not my problem. And I said, if I take the job, I want all of the all the accoutrements and so forth. And I said, oh, by the way, tall Steve, that presentation you loved when he brought it to the UK, that was mine and he stole it. Anyway, so I, that's how I got a very non-traditional job. And it was not rocket science. Mm-hmm. I got the company right-sized. I set things up. And then a headhunter came to me uh, looking for a board member. They wanted a woman. There were no women on uh, this company that was on the way up. And it was healthcare. So I went for the interview with the chairman of that company and it turned into a four hour argument. I could not stand this guy. He was in my face. He was, you know, he'd say, well, now you said that this happened in 1987, but that doesn't track. It's like, so we argued for four hours. The head under called me afterwards said, well, what do you think? I said, I wouldn't work for that guy or with him for anything. And she said, well, he loved you. And it's like, because he, because nobody would come back at him. You know, nobody come back at him. So I think, what are the lessons in that? Being feisty, standing up for yourself. Probably the best lesson that I was ever taught was by this wise woman that I studied with. It's hard to describe who she was, but she was she was someone who was completely centered in herself. And she asked me, she said, why do you think you're successful? And I said, well, it's clear. I worked my butt off. And she said, no, you always said yes at the door. Mm-hmm. And there's something in you that made you say, ah, it's not going to be rocket science on the other side of that door. So I think I'm going to walk through. And even if it is rocket science, maybe I can learn something. So that yes at the door is what started opening all the doors for me. So this was healthcare. I knew nothing about it. And I was very honest about it. I said, what you want is a sitting CEO who's a woman. What you really need is a sitting CEO who's a woman who's an expert in healthcare. And they said, no, we want you. So telling the truth is a big, big piece. I think you've touched on something that I come across mentoring. You know, as you know, in my mentoring program, I make sure there's 50% women and the other 50% are enlightened men. Um, so, you know, I think that's really important. And my idea is just that we're all showing up and you need both masculine and feminine energy to run business and, and head heart coherency is my version of 10x you know i really think if you can you can um, get into the zone of both those spaces it's really important but one thing that i find with them is they they do not go through that door until they feel that they are worthy of that door and that they have the experience on the other side of that door whereas 
you know, a lot of people say you've done so much and you've gone so far in your career. And I look at them as rings of a tree. So again, again, like Monsters Inc., you would look at them as doors, you know, that are all in front of you um, and which ones we decided to open. But I think Crucial Conversations, which is one of my favourite books, because when I read it, I was nodding going, oh, my God, this is almost like <laughs> my Bible of how I, I do things, is I don't mind being honest and almost bringing up things that are a little bit awkward at the start if I don't have the experience, because you need to set expectations. So if you do that, you can open more doors. Would you agree? Or that they're opening the door for you, right? It's just a matter Absolutely. of saying, before I enter, please be aware of the following. You know, it's interesting what you say, because I've heard this so many times, and so it must be true. Headhunters will say to you that if they have 10 items on a job description, men will apply if they only have three or four of the qualifications. Women won't apply unless they can say, I have eight, nine, or 10 of those. Therefore, we hold ourselves back, right? If you can get out of your own way to say, what is the worst thing that can happen? I won't get the job or I'll get the job and I'll be a miserable failure. If you can get out of the way of that and look at this as a game or an adventure, or isn't this interesting because I keep trying to find out what's my highest level of incompetence? I mean, I'm really curious about that. So if I'm curious about that, I need to open this door and look at that and think, oh, I think I can do that. That can't be that hard. I mean, the very first time I was asked to prepare a budget for a very large project. It was my first day on one of the jobs I had leading up to that CEO job. And the owner came in and said, I'm, I hate to do this to you on your first day. We have a presentation to the lender tomorrow. I need a fully itemized marketing budget. Sure. When do you need it? 9 a.m. Okay. Waited till everybody left, went to the files, and I figured there will be marketing budgets in each project, dug out five of them, took them home, spread them out on my bedroom floor, and I had no idea what the line item codes were. They made no sense to me. They're just, you know, letters. But each one, I think there were probably 97 line items. So over these five projects, I added up the totals for every one of them, divided it first by five, because it's five different projects. And then I found out the number of housing units that were going to be sold, factored that in, and got a factor. I did that 97 times. And I figured... I can't be that far off if I'm averaging their budgets and I'm controlling for the number of units and the amount of time and presented a budget and it, you know, and it worked. So, I mean, this isn't rocket science. No. So I guess the lesson is if you want to get from here to there, there will always be a way to do that. If you just think outside of the box. Now you could say, maybe I should have educated myself more. I had no time. I was asked, you know, I was, I was put under the gun and it's like, you're going to give me 12 hours to do this. Okay. And I'm going to do this. And that's a game. And it gives you a challenge. I find it very interesting. Mm. You know, it's just, you have to be curious about it. And you have to think, okay, how would I get there? Mm. And that worked. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I feel like every challenge that I accept, I mean, I don't know nothing about gaming, but here we are. I'm, you know, going into that area at the moment. But what I love about it is anything that has me a little fearful and a little bit childish. So when I say fear and childlike, it's that fear of 
oh, am I nervous that I might not be able to pull this off? Yes, that excites me because then that means I will be challenged and I will grow through that process. And the childlike thing is is to just stay intrigued and and playful and mm-hmm. enjoy the process. We've gotten far too serious about all of this stuff. We're very, we're very, very <laughs> serious. Exactly. And boards are very serious business, you know. And oh, they are. I'm like, why can't we laugh at our board meeting? Like, why can't we all start with something that's a little bit more lighthearted? And why can't we talk about personal? And, you know, so I love to change things up in my board meetings because I found them boring. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> oh, God, yes. So I went on a mutual fund board. I think I've told you this story. First woman founded in 1929. A longer story about what the only question they asked me, they didn't say, well, why do you think you have any acumen about the financial markets or you've done this and that, but you've never been in this industry. And any of the questions that I was prepared to answer, that would have been the logical questions. The only question was, you do play golf, don't you? And it ticked me off enough that that was the criteria. And what I wanted to say was, I didn't grow up on the East Coast. I don't belong to four country clubs. I've been a single mom and a CEO. So that's like a full-time job. And so I don't play golf in the afternoon. What I wound up saying is, yes, I do. Because the door was going to close. And then they said, oh, we're we're so relieved that you do. Because we have an outing to Augusta National every year. And we want you to come. It's like, uh oh. I'm going to have to do something about it. I called my husband. It can't be hard, surely. It's a stick in a ball. Well, it is a, it is a ridiculous game. So I called him. I, he said, how, how did it go? And I said, well, I think they like me. I think I've got the job, but I have a small problem. I lied about playing golf. And he said, well, how long do you have? And I said, well, it's six months until Augusta. So I have six months. And he said, basically, you're screwed. You cannot learn to play golf that well. I took lessons. I could drive it. I had no short game. I was terrified at Augusta of thinking of all the tripwires, but I would not have been on that board now for 15 years if I hadn't had some chutzpah and said, oh, yeah, I'll do it. I mean, I was terrified. I was terrified making a fool of myself. But what's, what's the goal, mark- though? That's what's really funny. It's You've gone from VP of marketing to financial institutions, global financial institutions, and you're worried about golf. It kind of. Yes. yes. And, and, the, and the irony of that, you know, you talk about a little humor. The first night in the first board meeting I went to, there's a dinner before with the, the Lynx Club in New York, which is total male bastion. No women's bathrooms above the first floor. I mean, it's so we walk into this dining room and it's a small private dining room, fireplace in the background, round table, nine chairs. And I know these guys have been sitting in the same chair for, you know, 15 years. So I hesitate at the door thinking they're going to tell me where I should sit. I want to sit in Joe's chair. I don't want to sit in Bill's chair. They hesitate because they've never had a woman. They don't know what to do. So somebody has to do something. So I say, well, let's just sit girl, boy, girl, boy, which I think is very funny. Nobody laughed. Nobody laughed, but it broke the ice and and we sat. The next day, the chairman tells the rest of the the, um, executives who came to the meeting as if he had said that. Mm. It's like, okay, that's the way this is going to work. Got Mm. it. I understand that. I I love that you do that. <laughs> well, and not only that, they'll remember that. I'm sure they're still speaking about that moment, which is interesting. So, so we're talking. This is brunch with billionaires, and I want to talk to you about 
when you got to a moment, I know you've always shown up in your heart space and, you know, you've you've always taken those leaps, which is, you know, part of your success story, one of many amazing things about you. What what was it where the moment where you went, I can do really good impact work from this? Did you do that post-career? Did you make that transition through? Because to be conscious of it, I was automatically saying no to things that I thought, I mean, that's why I started my marketing agency at 19. It was because I got headhunted out of university because I was, you know, top grades, top VHAs for my program, got a great agency job and they put me on accounts and I said, I'm sorry, I can't sell more of this stuff. I I, I can't encourage gambling. Like I'm not going to promote a casino, but that's your job. And I'm like, yeah, but I, I don't want to use my seed of, you know, potentiality, my genius, my zone of genius for other people to make money where it's hurting people. So that's why I went out and started my own agency because I thought I will pick my clients. And I then when I went to investing, I was doing the same thing. I was going, I believe in this because it impacts money and it's profit and purpose before I even knew what impact investing was, before I knew about profit and purpose as a term. So when did you become conscious of this as being a way for you to use your magic? Because what you do is magical. You make this sound so easy, but I can only imagine. There's there's at least a movie or two or a book in, in some of the boardroom stories you have <laughs> and maybe a, a, an MA rating. But, you know, when did you realise I actually hold some sort of magical power to be able to create really good things and to shift the way of thinking so that this board can go on to be sustainable and create impact and be profitable. Did you see that they coexisted? You know, this probably started for me when I went on the healthcare board because it wasn't, we were not making widgets. We were making decisions about people's healthcare. And there's so many times in that boardroom that I can remember there'd be a debate and I'd say, this is healthcare, damn it. We need to be held to a higher, a higher accountability. And you know, here's a funny story. So my mother um, passed away from cancer when I was 17. And after she died, I found some letters that she had written to her sisters. And she'd had a series of, of operations. And she said, thank God for Blue Cross of California. I would never have been able to afford all of the brilliant surgery that I had. The irony of this was that was the board I had originally gone on, Blue Cross. And it gets even funnier, parenthetically, when I was in college, I had tried to pick up some extra money doing modeling. And I'd forgotten that one of the companies that I'd done some um, an ad campaign for was actually Blue Cross. And I was playing, I was playing a secretary and I was being handed my healthcare card. I actually later had that blown up and framed with a saying underneath is, yeah, right. And someday I'll be on the board of this company. And that was hung in the boardroom. But the point was, I could see this through my mother's eyes. It saved her life for a period of time. And every patient is somebody's child or mother or cousin or friend. And it's personal. You know, I mean, to your point, the numerate people at the table, that's all they saw. They were looking at the sales figures. They were looking at the revenue. They were looking at the bottom line. They weren't looking at the lives that they affected. And I have to say, when I'm on that board, it was all men. The guy who was running Merrill Lynch was the chairman of the board. You know, I mean, there's just, 
there's a sensitivity, I think, to making it personal. And for me, on the healthcare board, I kept seeing my mother's face and, and thinking that every one of these people is a life. It's a life. And the decisions that we make have to go the way of, of helping. I also had a wise woman who said to me one time, here's an American Indian way to live your life, prescription. And it's show up, pay attention, tell the truth, and don't be attached to the outcome. And that last one is the toughest part. But something in me internalized that telling the truth. And the truth here is if you deny that, somebody's child may die. If you deny that, somebody's going to have a much longer struggle to become healthy again. So let's keep in mind that this is personal. And then I got very frustrated. Somebody said to me once, you can't have this mindset unless you have an epiphany of your own of some sort. And so I kept trying to think, well, how do I, how do I find a way for these people to have their own epiphanies? And that's where I found this organization that I'm now on the board of called Leaders Quest. And when I met them, I, I said, I'm so frustrated. I just, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to get people to change. And Lindsay Levin, who's the founder and the owner said, well, it may surprise you that I'm in the business of creating opportunities for epiphanies. So she took board members from Coca-Cola or from uh, Google and put them in really difficult circumstances, either down in the coal mines of Appalachia or in villages in India where Coke had bought up all the water rights in perpetuity and what's actually happening here to wake people up. And that has been kind of what I've tried to do is to open the aperture a little more and say, let's talk about what the effects of what our decisions are and get people to look at it that way. And, you know, the human to human term, if people come to me and I say, tell me about your business. Oh, I'm B2B, I'm B2C. And unless you're a technology company, which is still, you know, dealing with humans, everyone's in the H to H business, which we need to be mindful of because technology has taken us one way and we've forgotten about the human element and people are lost and there's such a huge lack of trust. So for me, the ability to be able to bring the human element back into a business is a winning formula. And really that just means putting purpose at your core and having a compass, a business compass for how you make decisions. Uh, and I create these, these, it's called the business compass, these nine pillars. And we create that at the start and we don't overcomplicate things because whenever we're unsure of something, we go back to our business compass and we go, does it tick every one of these boxes? If it's not, if it doesn't, then it's a no. And it's more important what we say no to than what we say yes to. And as soon as we say no, I always, this is my little magical bit, I say, you watch, you wait what gets sent to us from the universe when we yes. say hard no. And sometimes yes. I'm like, come on, universe. It's almost like when you're, you know, waiting for a car park. My kid's always like, she's got parking fairies. She'll find a park. And I'm like, come <laughs> on, park, where are you? But it true. always delivers. It, it's so true. And, you know, I love that you were thinking that way and that you you join that organization to almost create a, um, a process for how you do that. Because otherwise you end up bitter. I would imagine you've been in situations where you were outvoted 
And it didn't go that way. And you knew that would have affected people in a negative way. So how do you deal with that and not become bitter and continue to stay positive and get out of bed every day and continue to fight and be that odd person on the board? I mean, at the end of the day, sometimes I get sick of being the one saying the opposite all the time. I think you pick your battles for one thing, but is the most important on a number of boards, there have been some very short-sighted individuals. Um, I have, I'm not rude to them. I just see them for who they are. They're not the ones that I'm going to try to move. All we'll do is get into a you know a pitch battle. I remember talking to one guy who worked for General Mills, and we had a discussion on GMO, and he absolutely did not believe that that had anything to do with anything, that it wasn't the science, that GMO product, that it was just a marketing scam to say non-GMO. And I said, hmm, oh, because I'm never going to convince him, you know? And so I think you pick your battles. And for me, there has always been someone who is a partner, somebody who kind of has your back. Very frequently, it's another woman on the board who can hear you where you know, other people can't necessarily hear you. I think, so for some people, I mean, it's the language that you put it in. And for some people, I could not get through to them until I could talk to them about the end result on the bottom line. And that the reputational risk could be a negative to the bottom line. So wouldn't you rather spend X percentage, a little bit more on saying yes more often and not have as many lawsuits, not have any, as many regulators coming after you, not having your business model being questioned the way it was. I mean, if you look at, I mean, people listening to this and they look at healthcare in the US, I did not change it one bit. It's still going to be the way it is. But at least for a period of time, I could get consensus around, yes, we need to do this. Women's breast cancer issues were a big deal for me. I remember one case where a woman was denied coverage because her doctor wanted a certain kind of radiation. And it was a kind of radiation that protected her heart and it was more expensive. And they said no to it. I went to the chief medical officer and I said, I need you to tell me why this isn't on our formulary list. This is saving women's lives. And he said, because I can't get it approved. And I said, can I give you air cover at the board? Can I talk about this? And he said, absolutely. So those are the ways that I found opportunities to go to the root cause of the problem and see if I could move it, move the dial a little bit. You know, show up, pay attention, tell the truth. Don't be attached to the outcome. And you ask and, for permission. Yeah. Which yeah. I think is really important. Um, you know, not being arrogant about it, not not feeling like you need to stand on a podium, but having a conversation mm -hmm. and what that looks like. But I agree with you on the end game. People come to me because they know that I know how to grow businesses and the impact piece when I said on, but as long as you commit to impact, it's almost like sometimes I get up, oh, whatever, <laughs> as long as I get my, my end goal, which is growth and market share or whatever it is. What I find is really beautiful is I know that at the start. I know sometimes I'm just, you know, being told, yes, you can have what you want because that's what's important to you. What I love is believing in human beings, being human beings. Everyone, I believe, wants to do good by, by everyone and the planet. 
And when you show them through that by saying, here's the end game, but you'll do it ethically, when you take people on that journey, it's always the journey, not the destination, right? And, you know, you just said the destination is healthcare is still, you know, pretty stuffed, but it's that journey of shifting people and, and, and them enjoying their jobs and seeing the impact that they make. They're the things that that are important, not when you're sitting in that big house at the end of your journey all alone. It's it's it, 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 it's never the destination. It's what you are able to do and how you're able to shift people and make impact on that way through. And what I find is people say to me, oh, I know you said this was important, but now I'm so passionate about this because I not only see how it helps my business and I see the culture shift in my people, but I'm really loving my job again. You know, mm-hmm. I've got this new sense of drive and purpose for why I'm on the planet. And being able to facilitate that is is such a beautiful thing. And I see that you do that a lot in everything you say yes to because you give a lot of time. You know, we met through, you know, YPO and you have, you're not even a member and you're giving lots of time to that. I mean, you could retire by now. Why are you still sitting on, you know, the, the Lloyd Bank um, board? Why are you showing up to these YPO events? Um, I mean, is it because you get, uh, you know, you get to continue your impact? Or is there something in you that says, I'm just going to keep going? Is it because you think there's too much more to do? Two answers to that. The first one, my brother asked me not too long ago, he's younger than I. And he said, when are you going to retire? And I said, this is me retired. This this is what I want to do. Second answer is I am having a ball. I, there's something I learn new every day. There's something that's opens my awareness. There's somebody that needs my help. There's a place to go to work on something that's worthy work. It just, it's fun. I'm having such a good time. I can't imagine. I mean, what would I do? Go learn how to really play golf? Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. that one already. I think you're fine. But, well, if you can fake it till you make it. But, but <laughs> the, the, the point for me is, um, you know, the, the sense of getting into flow. This period of my life is flow. Part of it is this mastery thing that you have to have done something for 10,000 hours and it becomes easy. It's like I was asked to chair the board of trustees at the University of California. And I had a number of people say, oh, that's just so political. And oh my God, why would you do it? It was pure joy for me. If I didn't know how to do that by now, I would be really disappointed. It's pure joy. And part of it is because the little things don't matter. This is a university where 50% of the students are first generation. This is a a university where there are more Pell Grants, which is a national scholarship um, program in just one campus of the University of California than all of the Ivy League campuses. So this is the American dream, right? This is what our democracy depends on. Why wouldn't I go there and try to help? And why wouldn't I change from having all old white male trustees to opening the door and bringing in women and bringing in people of color who are coherent with who our students are, what our community is. So in the six years we've transitioned, it is a completely different board of directors. That was just fun. I mean, the way it used to work is that one older white gentleman would take another older white gentleman to lunch and then he'd become a trustee. So I figured before I took over, I had a certain period of time where I could beg forgiveness rather than ask 
permission. So I went out and um, recruited 10 new trustees. And when I introduced them at my first trustee board meeting, I said, I want you to meet the 10 new that we've brought on. I want to point out that eight of them are women. So now, guys, you know where to find them because I've heard for so long you couldn't find them. And here they are. And we just we had a holiday party at the end of uh, the year last year, and everybody was talking to each other. These people who had curiosity now finally about who are our new trustees? Why are they here? What is their life story? And the the women and these people of color who'd come on the board are saying, oh, I actually can exist with this group. And it was just, that to me is joyful. That will change what the University of California does going forward. Why wouldn't I do that? It was fun to do that. So replicating that in any place I go, I think, as you said earlier, the no's are just as important. So there are things that are, quote, glamorous or prestigious. Orange County is a very wealthy community. I hate to admit this, but the arts are very, very well funded. For one reason, because it's a C and B scene. It's a dress up. I love the cultural events, but I'm not on any of the boards or the guilds or the leagues because I don't want to put on my St. John suit and my so-and-so heels and go to lunch with the ladies. It's covered. They're raising money for the arts. That doesn't appeal to me. What appeals to me is to actually make some palpable change somewhere doing something. So when I was running the land development construction company, um, I discovered that a domestic violence shelter had to move out of this little house in Laguna Beach. I brought together four builders. I went to the company that owns all the land around here. And I said, I need you to donate some land for me. I need this to be a brand new state-of-the-art shelter. I need it to be hidden in plain sight. And I've got the four builders who are going to use their subs and suppliers, and we're going to build them a new shelter. Everybody jumped in. Everybody. We got the land. The roofing contractor donated all the materials. And, the, and we built this fabulous state-of-the-art shelter that won an Urban Land Institute Award for design and a lot of detail in that. Why wouldn't you do that? And and the woman who runs the agency calls it the house that love built. And it's true. It was the love of all of these contractors who said, let's form a community. Let's form a group and, and together we can do this. That is fun. That makes me happy. That's the psychic reward. Why wouldn't I do that? But, but you know what I love about what you just said is it only took somebody to lead and have that vision. You're not doing the physical work. You're you're painting the vision. You're bringing together the right people so that it it's not impossible to achieve this. So, you know, being able to wield those right people together and then, you know, making that a fun, rewarding journey. And people overcomplicate things. And I see it all the time. Like we have to, you know, involve this person and, you, you know, this this committee needs to be involved. Why can't we just take the leap as humans and just come together and solve the problems, which is what I love about business because we're problem solvers by nature. But when we apply that to problems that are in our local communities that, are you know, um, affect the planet, uh, affect the people on it, we're able to apply those zone of genius and our skills that we spent 10,000 hours on, but to things that have multiplying effects. And you make that sound so easy, but I want to remind you of the legacy 
And I know that word is, you know, sounds very, very pompous and, you know, my legacy is, but the legacy that you're creating is continually, it's an ecosystem that you've created and every person that you've touched is now thinking a little differently and going, actually, that wasn't so hard to solve. So they will then step up and do that next time they see something simple, um, you know, that's sim- hard, that is simple to solve. So what I love about what you do is you not only jump in and solve it, have the vision, create the people, but you also give others hope and show them how easy it can be done. And regardless of whether it's legacy or whatever it is that you are creating, you're, you're doing that. And the the world <laughs> needs way more Julies in it. Yeah. And I, I'm just so grateful that you're sharing some of these stories because, you know, male women, who, whoever's listening to this podcast I want you to be inspired to not just say, okay, well, that's that's Julie, that's what she's doing, but actually anyone can do that. Women can be on boards even if they don't have experience. They can go find that, go find a mentor. Say that in your interview. I've never been on a board. I don't play golf, <laughs> but I can go get lessons. And it's important because boards with more women on it outperform. It's just a fact. I remember when, um, you know, the mining industry were looking at bringing more women in and, uh, you know, we set a goal of 20% of women in mining. Uh, You know, I didn't use the handout. I said, let's just do a study. And it turned out that women who drive dump trucks, um, you know, were 30% more efficient. They, you know, the the maintenance on the cars was 40% lower, all these things. And I'm like, oh, well, guess it adds up to do it. So, you know, that's really my approach is I'm not asking for handouts. I'm not talking about the gap. I'm talking about the commercial realities of that and what that means. And then, you know, what does that mean for culture as well? Because, you know, the men who got to work with these women got to see that, oh, there's other things like the nanny hour. They got to work so that they could pick up their kids. And they wanted that as well, which is wonderful because then we're like, well, you can have that as well. It's not just for women. Why don't you pick up the kids from school? I'd love to do that. So it opens up all these beautiful conversations around how we can be better humans because work and and family are not separated. We need to get better at having those conversations together and being okay to, you know, go to a board meeting, have some fun, talk about our families, and then get to business knowing that we can keep it simple and make positive impact. You know, we can't create fully integrated companies if we're not a fully integrated human being and a fully integrated board and being able to bring all parts of ourselves. And, you know, in this whole exercise with this domestic violence shelter, what I learned was you can appeal to someone's better angel. Everybody has one. They just don't always get inspired to wave it or to let it out. And then you get into a kind of a sense of community where there's this camaraderie that happens. You get into flow. You start to realize that the power of the collective is so great. Everybody wants to be a piece of something good. And that that shelter was such a joy to create. And part of what's going on for me in my life right now is this connection between joy and awe and gratitude. And to be able to actually live in the moment, it has to me, you have to be aware of the awe of what's happening and be grateful that it's there and then just enjoy the joy of it. 
And that's, I think, what probably fuels me now. And I try to bring people into my life who, I don't know if they could articulate it, but, but live that way because it's just not this serious, right? It's just not that fraught. And humor helps. I mean, there are times when I've said things that were a little cheeky, but it breaks the ice. You know, everybody can see the humor and the humanity in it. And to be able to bring that in without editing yourself, I didn't always do that. There are times when I, you know, tried to conform and cloning male behavior. And then I thought, this is just boring. This isn't who I am. It's exhausting too. It's like keeping alive. Once someone once told me, look, you know, if you always tell the truth, it's just so much easier because you don't have to keep tabs on anything. I'm like, oh, you don't have to. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and it's magical because you never know. I, I read it, I think it was in the book, People of the Lie by Scott Peck. And his definition of evil was probably the simplest and the clearest I had ever seen. Definition was absence of truth. Mm-hmm. To me, that's profound because if you pervert the truth, what is supposed to happen, what is supposed to organically evolve gets aborted. So telling the truth is is just such an easier way to go that creates awe and joy and gratitude and flow. And to be able to access that, I am so grateful for that. Mm. You know, so why would I quit? Why would I quit now? Oh, you can't. We've got way more to do. <laughs> yeah, there are adventures ahead, there's no doubt. Oh, absolutely. And speaking of adventures, you've had a few lately. We um the financial state we've had a few banks go down uh in america and um i know that you sit on a board of one so how are you finding they're showing up are they showing up in a state of basal or basuk in this environment um you know are they telling the truth is there transparency in that where do you where do you see this going and and is there some good in this for some change the answer to your last question is yes i think that's true this uh, hit me on two levels. I have a son who is CFO of a, um, a fintech bank in San Francisco called Chime. Very, very successful. Their banker was Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, the letters of credit were with Silicon Valley Bank. Um, I sat next to him on a, a, a board called the uh, Southern California uh, Tech Alliance. And I was sitting next to Craig Becker, Greg Becker, who was the CEO probably three years ago. And what struck me about him was the arrogance of this, just the perception that it was always going to be okay. And then it wasn't. There are a lot of technical things that happened. Um, Moody's was going to downgrade them. They started to panic. My son was okay. Their deposits were eventually um, insured. My sense of this though, is that we we've seen the initial effect I think the longer term effects that are going to reverberate through the industry are going to be more profound than just this immediate, this immediate shock. I mean, there's a lot of talk of the regulators stepping in and and paying more attention. Um, Easy credit fueled so much in Silicon Valley. Hmm. Uh, I think that that's going to change. I think there's going to be a knock on effect in real estate credit. Hmm. Um, the, The combination of rising interest rates And the inverted yield curve, uh, the fact that we will never have probably a soft landing because the Fed is going to continue to raise interest rates. There's a lag time 
of six months or so where every increase has an effect, they won't see that. Mm. So it's going to be very difficult. I, what I used to say to my team at the land development company is that our business is highly cyclical because it is so interest rate sensitive. So when we up, when we're up, let's celebrate. When we're down, let's educate. What can we do better? How can we protect ourselves for further downturn? I think that's what's going to happen. So I think the silver lining is that we're going to get smarter. We're going to have better capital uh, coverage. We're going to understand that credit is not infinite, that we're going to have to collateralize at a greater level. But my senses will come out stronger. And I think we're going to avoid, I'm an optimist. I learned you can have an optimist gene in your DNA. I do. So every every time I say something, I have to give that disclaimer. I could be wrong. But I think we are going to be able to get through this. We're not going to have a 2008 meltdown. Um but I do think there's certainly lessons to be learned. Mm. And every time you have a downturn like that, it shakes out it shakes out the ones who shouldn't be there. Let me put it that way. Mm, I agree. And for me, my main concern is will the focus shift to survival instead of the abundance mentality around I, I, I do agree with you. There's the, the the bits where we need to educate and and get smarter. But you know, when things are apart and people come to me and they go, oh, my God, my business, it's in pieces, I go, well, I'm an optimist too. We got the same gene. This is great because we get to rebuild it. Like the parts are still there. We get to rebuild it. My thing is that I want to make sure that we send as much messages to rebuild it the correct way with impact in mind. And that's the huge sense of urgency that I have is we need more business leaders to not just be doing this behind closed doors, but coming forward who bank with them and say, now that this is in pieces, can we put it back together in this sort of way? Because impact is important to me. Absolutely. And, you know, that's that's the conversation that needs to be had, no matter what industry we're in, um, whatever, you know, is a casualty of that. We have those pieces, let's put them back together and let's make sure purpose is at the core of that. And, you know, the more um, more conversations we have, the more boards we sit on where we can encourage that conversation and then show them how that end goal is, is we come back stronger, but we not only come back stronger, we come back stronger, smarter, and more sustainable. Those three pillars to me are really important. And um, I see this as a, a time for us to be doing that, not thinking about scarcity and going back to old ways because there is that revert as well. You do get a lot of people who go, oh, well, now we just need to go back. We can't afford sustainable. You know, we can't afford these initiatives because they just cost money. So we've got to be very careful right now as to which way we go based on the state that we show up. And it shouldn't be in a state of scarcity. It shouldn't be in a state of survival, but instead how can we take this, make it better, and all thrive and do better by people and planet in the process? So that's uh, sort of what's on my radar at the moment. You know what's so interesting about that? I think people either come from scarcity or they come from abundance. And if you come from abundance, you feel that you can multiply abundance and you feel generosity of spirit and you feel like you can give it away. If it takes some of your profits to create something new that is sustainable, that gives back. But you have to have that security 
of believing in abundance, even when there's scarcity all around. And I don't know how, I think that's kind of built into people, kind of structurally built in. You can show them. I don't know. You can tell them. You can show them that an abundant mindset breeds more abundance. But I think people are either fear-based or love-based. And if you're fear-based, you contract and it's self-fulfilling. If you have an abundant sense, I think I think that's inextricably linked to joy, that there's enough joy and there's enough abundance that we can rebuild. We have the capacity to do that. And this is just part of the ride. You know, this is, I live near Disneyland and they used to have these e-ticket rides. Those were the most expensive. I always wanted to go on the e-ticket rides because they were the, they had the highest highs and the lowest lows and they're the most fun. Right, join business so, instead. <laughs> exactly, but the highs and the lows. And if if you're in it for the longer term, and you understand that you will have highs and you will have lows, it makes you a lot more philosophical. And you just this this same wise woman said to me one time, "What are you going to do about this?" And I said, "I'm not sure. I know." And she said, "When you're in a situation like that, just do the next indicated thing." Because you'll know that. You don't have to have the whole roadmap in front of you. But you do know the next step. Just take that step. And then it leads to the next step. And that's really faith-based, right? It's it's based in the faith that the universe is abundant, that things will grow, that what goes down comes up. And I think just taking that step, people become paralyzed. And so they don't make decisions. They just contract. And what I wanted, you know, somebody else said to me one time, you know the definition of a good friend? It's no. And she said, it's the one who sings, who hears the song in your heart and sings it to you when your memory fails. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we need to do with people. Find the song in their heart and sing it back to them. And on that note, let's go sing, my love. Okay, my friend. <laughs> and let's put business to great use. And let's bring abundance back and joy into everything that we touch. And I feel it will take care of itself. I will drink to that. We will soon (laughs) when I see you. (laughs) Thank you so much for this beautiful conversation. I know it's going to continue your uh, impact on not only me but many people. Again, a dear friend of mine and a a mentor, and I just can't keep you for myself. I had to do this episode. (laughs) Uh, I could share the 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 magic that um, I see in you, and that I would love to multiply. So, multiply Thank away. <laughs> Thank you, my pure, pure joy. Hmm. Mwah. Mwah.